The Future Works, a podcast for workforce professionals, hosted by me, Melinda Mack. People with disabilities are parts of our community. And, you know, when you've met one person with a disability, you've met one person with a disability. Well, we've made it. It's the last week of August, 26 weeks since New York went under lockdown, and it's starting to turn into fall. Since our last podcast at the end of July, we still do not have a federal stimulus deal. We're nearing 177,000 COVID deaths nationwide, and many of us with small kids are on pins and needles trying to figure out what the heck we're gonna do with school this year. As colleges and universities have begun to open up across the South and the Northeast, I think we're quickly learning that college kids in quarantine are not a good combo. It really is leaving us with a lot of uncertainty about what the next six to 12 or even 24 weeks is gonna look like here in, in New York and across the country. In a state like New York, where we've actually done a pretty good job of staving off the next wave of infections, many of our side streets right now are lined with outdoor cafes, shops are bustling with customers, and as of today, gyms and fitness centers have the okay to open. It's really hard not to will us to go back to where we used to be or what the old normal used to look like. However, our labor market's telling a really different story. As of August 15th, sort of the data run that the State Department of Labor does each week, all sectors are still seeing increases in unemployment insurance claims, with nearly 3.5 million New Yorkers claiming UI. And about 900,000 of those are coming from accommodations and food services, so hospitality, hotels, as well as food service and retail. But even the sectors you might not think would be experiencing any kind of decline, places you think would typically be safe, like healthcare, are seeing an increase in claims. Just as of the 15th, there were 375,000 claims in healthcare and social assistance. Anecdotally, and speaking with some of our colleagues in the nursing home sector, they're seeing census rates go down across the states, meaning elderly residents are being kept home by their family members, or tragically, they just haven't been able to survive a COVID infection. This has been leading me to think a lot about those in our communities who are the most vulnerable, and really thinking about, in particular, their economic outcomes. I think as we still wait on a federal stimulus package that helps to insulate and provide workforce development services, job training, income stability for many Americans. It's hard not to wonder about those who are vulnerable, about how they're sort of making it through this crisis. The end of July also marked a really important milestone. It was 30 years since the Americans with Disabilities Act was signed by President Bush. This was a historic piece of legislation meant to level the playing field for people by ensuring that work and life provided the basic accommodations so our fellow Americans could participate and thrive in their communities. I pulled up the February data, so February 2020, and I mean, honestly, it showed just how much work we still have left to do. You know, in 30 years, you would think we would have been able to provide meaningful and stable employment for people with disabilities who are able, active, want to participate in the workforce. Um, But instead, what it showed was that 19.3% of people with disabilities were employed versus 63% of employment by the non-disability community. Around 30.9% of the population, so 40% of the population of the working age 16 to 64 have some form of a disability. And in looking at data just done by Cornell in May, 
43% of Americans with a disability employed in 2018 worked in industries now most affected with COVID or by the COVID crisis. So construction, wholesale and retail trades, the arts and entertainment, transportation, um, meaning that individuals with disabilities are really facing some pretty stark unemployment numbers. People with disabilities were struggling to find a place in the labor market when it was exceptionally good. We had a run of incredible years of really low unemployment rates, but again, people with disabilities had a 19.3% employment rate. So, although I care really deeply about this segment of the workforce sector, I am nowhere near an expert. So for this month's The Future Works podcast, I've asked my friend and colleague, Michael Syrider, the president and CEO of the New York Alliance for Inclusion and Innovation, which supports organizations and institutions who provide care, advancement, advocacy for New Yorkers with disabilities to join us to talk about just this. What has it been like um, to be an organization that serves people with disabilities, to be an individual with a disability living through the COVID era? And then more importantly, what does the outcome look like when we think about how we're going to support and serve this population over the next 12 to 24 months? So with that, I hope you enjoy today's show. My name is Michael Seawriter. I am the president and CEO of the New York Alliance for Inclusion and Innovation. We're a statewide trade association that represents providers of services to people with disabilities across the state of New York. I, I typically bucket our activity into th four main areas. Um, the first is around policy work. We are registered lobbyists and uh, spend an awful lot of time watching the policy issues that impact um, not just the providers of services, but also the people with disabilities they support. We do an awful lot of advocacy, um, trying to get campaigns um, up and off the ground to do things like support our uh, direct support professionals who do the work of actually supporting people with disabilities. Uh, we provide quite a bit of technical assistance to our organization members uh, in helping them transform their systems as the systems are transforming around them. And lastly, we do an awful lot of education. Uh, I oftentimes feel like we're the conduit for bringing our members together to have conversations about best practices, how things are working, how things are not working, and how we can emulate those things that do that work the best. Well, I mean, in many ways, you are my go-to when it comes to all things supporting individuals with disabilities. And then the part that's really unique about your organization is it's not just about the professionals who provide the service, but it's also around the people who are being served, right? Which is a, a unique sort of, you know, nexus of the type of work that you do. Which leads me to my, my first question. You know, I think as I shared in the lead up here, the more and the, the deeper we get into this crisis, the more the most vulnerable are being impacted. And you're sort of seeing it from two ends, right? You're seeing it from the service delivery providers or the direct support professionals who are going in day in and day out, um, but also around the individuals across the state who are either in need of services or are looking to and seeking out employment. Um, and so from your perspective, from where you sit, what has this crisis meant for your the sector that's related to serving people with disabilities? Well, let's first start start talking about the health outcomes because that's you know as I think about this myself these days, um, health and safety of myself, my family, and those I care most about is the number one important thing, and as is it is for everybody, and it really causes to, causes us to have a different perspective on things these days. So the health outcomes, if you will, in general for this population, and I'm going to speak specifically to the population of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, um, and specifically those supported by the Office for People with Developmental Disabilities here in New York. Um, the rate of infection for this population of people is just slightly higher than the rate of infection of the general population, but the rate of death 
of this population of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities is almost three times the rate of the general population. I think that speaks to a couple things. Number one is that you're dealing with populations of people who often, oftentimes have uh, health comorbidities that make themselves, they make them more susceptible to um, some of the challenges related to COVID-19. Um, but the other factor here is an environmental one where um, you have another, an, a large system that supports about 140,000 people with uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities. And our system has an overwhelming uh, reliance on congregate levels of, of support. So you congregate people together in groups of as small typically as two or three, but oftentimes more like four to six for residential, sometimes eight to 12, and even larger than that. Um, and you also congregate people in day programs as well. So um, we see that that's a, a pretty significant impact. And I also, I think we're seeing a pretty significant impact on the direct support professionals who provide those supports and services. Um, and I, I cannot help but make the, the connection here um, about disproportionate impact on the DSPs, the direct support professionals who do this work. And the fact that we see higher rates of infection and death among black Americans, um, and, and, and the fact that our system is disproportionately reliant on Black and Latino people to do the work of providing direct support professional um, uh, services to, to people. And I, again, it's environmental here. You see an awful lot of those DSPs who travel and they see many people within throughout the day. Oftentimes those people are working two and sometimes three jobs. So they are you know, working at multiple residences or multiple programs. So you see an awful lot of intermingling and working with a, a lot of people, which makes them, I think that environmental factor make, creates an awful lot of susceptibility to infection. Um, and lastly here, I think that this experience for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities is really varied because you have these, these really significant different circumstances. People who live at home with mom and dad or with a sibling versus those who live in certified settings, those who are, are working in the community through programs like the supported employment program and you know, at work at a grocery store or in a cleaning business um, versus those that are in congregate levels of, of um, or congregate services like pre-vocational services and day supports. So it's a really, it's a mixed bag across the board. Um, well, I think you raised something that's super important too is, you know, often we think about special populations, we think about it as a, as a one singular group. And especially when you're thinking about individual disabilities, there's a wide range of what that means and the types of not only abilities, but the types of services somebody receives, the types of programs that they engage in, the providers that they encounter with. And that wide range also is in some ways shows that this, this, this sector, this part of the sector has been deeply impacted in many different ways. And so as you're sharing sort of people who are working and sort of a supported employment program have a different set of impacts than someone who's in a congregate care setting. So it's just, it's interesting to hear you speak about it. And also just all these different ways that the people you work with, like are in the community providing supports and services that we all use every day. That's right. Yeah, you know, a lot of people actually it was at the first at the onset of the pandemic, the example was given of a whole number of people with disabilities who work on cleaning crews and cleaning contracts. And and the fact that now now is a time that even more than ever, you need supported employment programs to make sure that those people have the supports that they need to be able to do the job effectively, especially as we change the job to make sure that those workspaces remain clean and remain disinfected. So um, they are, you know, people with, the, people with disabilities are parts of our community. And right to your point, you know, when you've met one person with a dis disability, you've met one person with a disability. 
So in thinking about the providers that do the service, um, how are they faring? I know at least in the, the you know, non-disability serving workforce community, it is such a mixed bag. It depends on if you have a state contract. If you have a state contract, you're probably not faring particularly well. If you're in New York City and sort of struggling through some of the challenges with reopening and sort of the timeliness of grant payments, et cetera, like everyone I feel like is strapped for cash and staff are really under an incredible amount of strain. Um, how is the provider community that you serve faring? How are they doing? In two words, very poorly. Um, we have a sector, so a, a bit of background here, I think important. You know, this sector of services is disproportionately um, reliant on government as its funding source. Many of the providers of services within our network are well over 90% reliant on programs like the Medicaid program um, as their source of revenue. And then, and, and you've seen challenges with that, which I can talk about, but you've also seen these pretty significant increased, co increased costs during this period of time as well that really create kind of the recipe for disaster for a sector like ours. Um, you know, we have a, um, I, I'll give you the example. So at the onset of the, um, of the crisis back in March, uh, there was a, a movement. We pushed it very hard to close many of the congregate uh, day programs, including pre-vocational supports that many uh, providers, many, many provider organizations offer. Um, and because of the congregate and the congregate nature of those services. And the idea was so that we could um, preserve those programs and make sure that the staff that work in those programs could be redeployed to support people in residential supports because we were expecting that the virus would also leave a lot of DSPs very ill and possibly dead. Um, and we need, and, and people who need help eating, going to the, going yeah. to the bathroom, et cetera. Just living, being alive. Yeah. Right. The basics, just the basics, right, yeah. to make sure that those are, are covered. And they created a retainer program for those direct support professionals so to keep them employed and ready for that redeployment. The federal government ended that, um, that retainer day program uh, in, er, in mid-July. And, um, and at the same time, the state decided that it was not going to proceed with what, what is typically called the state share of that. I think I would make the analogy in our workforce world of unemployment insurance. Um, so if when you when you had the federal government uh, that put in the extra unemployment insurance benefit and then it expired, this is akin to the state of New York saying, yeah, well, the federal government part is going away, so we're taking up our, our part away too. And leaving the providers with, really with nothing. And frankly, the, the need to reopen in a very hasty and unplanned way. So now that we have these providers that are in that position, um, they have gone through a process to do that. Um, I'll, I'll give you some numbers here. Um, we've done some surveying of our members and members across the, across the state actually um, to find out which of those providers have reopened those day programs and the degree to which they have. The 62% of them have reopened, but the average capacity for all of those programs is, is, not, is not getting to 30%. And how long can wow. you live on thirty percent of your revenue? Well, uh, ask any of these programs that, um, that 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 survive on a shoestring to be able to provide those supports. And when you think about the larger pieces of this, that's just an example of this. Uh, I'll actually quote to you from a letter that we wrote to the governor recently as part of our collaboration with other trade associations in the uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities sector. We wrote to the governor saying, in the most recent survey conducted of our members throughout the state for the period of March 1st through May 31st of this year, nonprofit organization providers um, have incurred $74 million in additional COVID-19 payroll costs to ensure adequate and critical staffing, $16 million to procure personal protective equipment, 
and close to $10 million in other expenses directly related to the pandemic. These added expenses combined with lost program revenue in excess of $81 million has resulted in a 40% increase in providers with less than 30 days of cash on hand since December of 2019. I think that kind of paints the picture. We're actually doing more surveying of our members now to find out how, how much more exacerbated the situation has become since our, um, our survey period of May 31st ended. It's, I mean, it's, I'm like, I'm listening to you and thinking about how wild this is. Like this is, it's wild that we're in this situation. Um, but I also can imagine from your perspective, how frustrating it is because it's not like it's the first time you've raised this as an issue, <laughs> right? Raise that like organizations are on shoestring budgets. Organizations really don't have a ton of cash on hand. Direct support professionals aren't being paid enough. And so I can imagine like there's a part of you that's in some ways like, see, we told you, but at the same time, it's like, my God, figure this out. Because in some instances, it really is life or death. It's the difference between being able to function in society and not, and in many ways, being able to find a pathway out of this pandemic that leaves you in a better situation than before. So, I mean, is that, did I characterize how you're feeling correctly? Oh, yes. Because I can imagine you like screaming when you get home every day. Yeah, I, and that's been a very difficult part of this, this crisis from the advocacy perspective is that we know that what was already a really challenged position is now that much more so. Um, and, and, and I don't see a safety net. I don't see any you know, plan in place to be able to support these, these, these individuals should these organizations not be able to do it any longer. Um, and and, and we're, we're definitely, uh, I'm always concerned about the cry wolf or the, the, the sky, that the sky is falling concern, right? But now we're really seeing some of those direct impacts, including with the 20% uh, withhold that was just implemented for some of the OPWD programs. That includes quite literally people's rent like 20% of the, of the rent will be withheld. How long is the landlord going to put up with that? Not long as my totally. guess. Well, you know, it's, it's also interesting if you're not an Albany person. So for folks who are listening, you know, we're, Michael and I are both in the state capital, right? And I think from, we're up here. And so we sort of really feel and understand the impacts of the state budget and like the machinations of what's happening with the state budget. I think it's hard for people to understand like the crisis that states and local governments really are under in terms of their own ability to have cash on hand. Um, and to your point, Michael, they're not paying out full on contracts. They're straight up just cutting programs and there's very little warning in terms of what's being cut and when. Um, and in some ways, like you understand, like you, we get intellectually why they have to do this because they're also trying to balance their books. Uh, but when it comes to being able to keep people safe, to keep people healthy, to make sure families have money for food <laughs> to eat, like it's big, like it's hard to see how all the pieces fit together and to see these pieces like crumbling underneath your fingers because they're going to be essential to get people back to work, right? Um, so I. So on sort of on that, I'm sure there's in some ways, like we often hear no cri good crisis goes to waste, right? <laughs> we say it in our office all the time, sometimes just about really little minor things. <laughs> but in reality, like this is a crisis and there are some opportunities for reorganization. There's opportunities to consolidate where we may have needed to consolidate, but there's also people who are really rising up to the challenge. What are some of the bright spots? What are some of the pieces that you feel like you're gonna walk away proud that the community has been able to rally around? Yeah, it's really hard, admittedly, to find some of those bright spots during this during this uh, challenging time. Maybe light um, gray spots then. <laughs> fine, okay, I'll take, I'll take whatever I can get. Um, but we've seen an awful lot of flexibilities that have been um, afforded to this sector and others 
uh, not the least of which is things like the tele-delivery of services, um, which we've been asking for and fighting for for years and years and years and years. And now suddenly, snap of a finger, we can make that happen. And I think we it allows us some space. And I, I think that's a, a reality of where we find ourselves in this system and probably many of these systems is that state government and government in general probably is not going to have a plethora of resources to offer us for quite a long time. Um, and how do we do more with what we have? I think it's going to be around flexibility. I think that's certainly in our world, you know, that's the type of thing that we're talking about. If you're unable to put those resources forward, we need to, we need to more flexibly use the ones that we have now, whether that's regulatory reform, whether that's taking the, you know, the, 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 the handcuffs off, the handcuffs off of uh, some of the service delivery, which is just unnecessary. And it, and it, I was just on a phone call earlier, and this is foremost, foremost in my head, where you know we we as a system talk about the need for this, you know, the concept of dignity of risk for people with disabilities. And we have become such a risk-averse system that um, yeah. we literally don't let people do anything. You know, uh, you know, literally, hot dogs must be cut in half the long way for people who live in certified residential for the fear of choking, because one person once upon a time choked on a hot dog. Um, so it's hard to find that 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 silver lining, if you will. But you know, I, I think about what we need both short term and long term. I guess um, the short term stuff is, I think, going to depend an awful lot on what happens at the federal level. You know, we have met recently with Schumer's office to um, to make the case around the need for some of the very spe sector specific things that we're looking for in terms of flexibility and and um, uh, re. re maintaining some of these retainer payments so that we can actually not lay off tens of thousands of people who are DSPs. Um, but the prospects for that are not looking good. I mean, I, I think I, our, our, one of our national organizations we were talking to recently was kind of making the, you know, begging the question about whether we'll see any uh, real change or any real uh, movement on this issue until there may be an administration change or possibly a change in Congress. Um, because that's kind of the situation I think we now find ourselves. In. But on the longer term, um, you know, I think it comes back to this system transformation stuff. Um, the need for flexibility is going to be a piece of that, as I said, but we need to be able to figure out how we better continue the, the move, the evolution of the way in which we support people with disabilities. You know, a couple things come to my mind about what, what has worked in the past, and I'll, I'll beg from the, the experience that I had actually when I was working in the governor's office and we were going through um, a process called clinic reform with the Office of Mental Health, and uh, providers every every Monday morning would call the New York City field office at that point and tell the state office of mental health that they were unable to make payroll on Tuesday or Wednesday or Friday, whatever the appropriate one was. And after a while, they got sick of that and they figured out that they were not going to be able to bail out all these organizations. So they created a technical assistance arm and the technical assistance helped build financial models, prediction to prediction model tools, and a whole variety of panoply of other things that are really valuable to help you improve your business operation. And it, it, was, it worked. And those that chose to take advantage of those resources um, were able to figure out a path forward. We're able to move toward that, that new reality, that new, that, that changed system. And those that didn't, well, frankly, that was their, their problem. You know, that, they did that at their own, at their, to their own peril to a degree. Um, I think we need something like that here, at least for our system is, you know, we need to chart a, a path forward, we need to figure out what that is. Um, and that's a that's not just the state necessarily, but it's the system dialoguing about that, but we clearly need clearer direction from, um, from the state about where, where we're going. Um, and providing some of the, the pathways to get there, including through some of the technical assistance that I think is the way you actually implement 
system reform, not by, as I like to say, burning it to burning it to the ground and hoping that a phoenix rises out of the ashes, because that's not the way this this gets done. It never works when you do it that way. No. Never. And in some ways, I, I feel like you can always tell the length of time of an advocate in the field because the new folks always want to burn it down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like they very rarely like like they don't look at the history to understand like why things were built this way. So you can understand the the smart way to dismantle it and rebuild. But it's interesting because I think the full workforce system, not just the the sector focused specifically on serving people with disabilities, is like going through the same thing, right? Like okay. we all need to do better. I think especially when we've looked at um, equity and race and how we've supported or not supported low-income New Yorkers come out of poverty. I think we've recognized that we didn't do a great job the last go around, or there's so much more we could have and should have done. Um, and so it's going to be interesting, I think, around how all these systems rebuild. And like, my hope is that we all figure out how to do it together. So we don't further silo some of these efforts moving forward, you know? Yeah. I very much agree with that. Yep, it's a uh, and it's very difficult to have that conversation during it's during during a time of crisis. It was because yeah, everything's on fire. Exactly right. I, I remember vividly a, a woman uh, from Western New York was participating in one of the last transformation conversations for our system, and you know, and she stood up to the commissioner at one point and said, you know. Uh, all your system reform is great and all, but I'm in crisis. And if you can, you can help me address my crisis right now about helping me support my daughter or get my daughter the supports that she needs so that I can actually participate in your conversation, I could actually participate in your conversation. But until that happens, I'm going to remain in crisis mode. You help me with yeah. my crisis, I'll help you with your system. Well, and I, you know, not to sort of shift away from this, but I do think there is going to be an even bigger crisis around employment for people with disabilities following Oh, yeah. sort of as we sort of try to pick up the pieces here oh yeah um, and it's weird because it's this like slow burn crisis that I think we're again when we think about economic stability and sustainability I have such deep concerns about our ability to help people who have visible non-visible disabilities participate in the labor market and the fact that we weren't able to dramatically increase participation during that best years of the economy. Right. Um, what do you sort of see as the future of our ability to really think about employment? I, you probably, you heard in my intro right around like the ADA. Yeah. It's hard not to reflect on the fact that it's been 30 years since we thought that people deserved basic rights <laughs> to participate in society. And yet we still have come like a quarter of an inch of the way. I don't know, what are your, what are your thoughts or reflections on it? Yeah, I, I, you you hit many of the same points I was going to say. In a concerted effort um, since the early 60s on this issue, in fact, um, we've not really moved the needle at all when it comes to the employment rate for people with disabilities, um, despite the best efforts and best intentions. And even especially during this time, this most recent time up to, let's call it March of this year, um, right. one of the most significant uh, economic boom booms that this country has ever seen, uh, prolonged boom booms, if you will, and we've not been able to mark make that change. I, I think it means that we really need to think about this differently. But I also think it it, it, it begs to some of the, the different thinking that we need to bring to it, I guess. Like, uh, I, I, I remember well, Melinda, your um, your trip to trip overseas to Europe and, and coming back and talking about how um, how, how these different societies, these different uh, economies think about these issues related to, 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 to disability. And that not it is not necessarily just government's problem or government's thing to fund, but it's everybody that there's a, there's a societal participation and looking after your brother or your sister type of thing that, um, that, other, that other societies 
think about a lot more seriously and 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 do something more about than just making it some one entity's problem. And I I, I think it begs some of the societal challenges, quite frankly, that we may have here. Um, as certainly as a society that deals with those issues, but also one that, you know, when it comes to the workforce of people who provide these supports and services, yeah, we, we, it's not just these are our services, anything in the kind of caretaking and helping people world is not really re respected in our, in our world and in our economy, yeah. in our, in our, in our country. And um, I think that's a, that's a reckoning we've got to come to, to, to grips with that, um, Supporting people is really important, and it's hard work. And if you can, and, and to do it well is is a real skill, quite frankly. Yeah, it's interesting. My my dad says, and he'll appreciate that I'm giving a sh him a shout out because I know he listens to this, right? <laughs> that you know he's in the healthcare profession. Hi, and there's always yeah, exactly. Hey, dad. Uh, there's always like when they start calling you a hero, that's when you should start to be concerned. And the fact that like our professionals who provide these critical supports to our communities are feeling that way. Like the way that you provide create change is actually fixing the structures and systems that that make them sort of unable to really be successful, right? And so, you know, I think to your point before, we've talked you and I over the last decade or so really around like how do we change the perception of caregiving occupations? I mean, if this isn't the time, I don't know when else we'll do it. I mean, I heard Robert Reich and Asian Poo did a full conversation through the New York Times about this. Like, like we're at this moment of, of real crisis. And to be honest, from a workforce standpoint, you are not going to be able to recruit and train people in, in these professions moving forward because we have really laid bare the substantial challenges and inequities and risks that are inherent in participating. And so we really have to figure out a better way to fund it. We've got to figure out a better way to recruit um, and then ultimately how to diversify the people who participate. That's exactly right. Our, one of our colleagues at the National Association of Direct Support Professionals is uh, Joe Macbeth, and he was you know, in, in trying to organize this, this little tiny microcosm of direct support professionals as part of the much larger, um, you know, Health and Human Services, um, caring for people, supporting people world. You know, one of the, the things that clearly came out of this from several DSPs was like, if things don't change after this, out of this, I'm out of here. Like you can you can you can take this job because this is this is just this is a fundamental thing. And unless we reckon with that, um, we've we're going to lose a whole bunch of people. And I think that that will probably, frankly, cause some of the. The, 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 the difficult conversation we're going to need to grapple with as a society and as governments about, well, the supply and demand is simply just going to kind of play out in this way. And um, we may have to very, very well pay more to, to get the same level of service that we ever got um, from just, just hiring bodies to be able to pe for, uh, people to do this work, um, let alone finding the skills and uh, the, the, the skills and the expertise to be able to do it well. So, Michael, on that note, um, besides the fact that we almost need a full-blown revolution, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this today. Um, I really appreciate not only your partnership, but always keeping me informed on what I need to know and how I need to think about some of the challenges that you're facing in your community. So, again, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for joining the Future Works podcast. You can download previous episodes at www.niatep.org.